Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Wednesday evening where we are set to continue our treatment of Special Topic Wednesday. Again, we have transitioned out of the world stage, Finding Christ in Cinema, into, again, this topic of Special Topics, which is essentially answering your questions. Now, again, I hope to return uh, with Father Mike to the world stage, but for now, uh, we are on sabbatical, and and we are treating your questions. Again, this radio program, Seeds of Truth as a whole, always seeks to meet you where you're at, right? The questions you're asking, what is in your mind, what is in your heart, and hopefully, by the grace of God, we are doing that. And in saying that, uh, the question that I have received and have been talking about over the past week out from a number of different conversations is the question, or maybe better said, relationship between what it means to be Christ-centered in how we live, and at the same time, how we defend the faith. So then the question we are going to take up today is, what does a Christ-centered or Christocentric apologetics look like? Certainly on one hand, my friends, this is subject matter that we have discussed before, but to put these two words side by side is something new. Remember, Uh, we have quoted Mark Twain before, that he once described poetry as two words being introduced to each other for the first time. Okay, so let us take up these two words and then put them side by side and and see what insights are there. So, first of all, what does it mean to be Christ-centered? Well, just what it sounds like, right? To put Jesus at the center of everything. Uh, Not one teacher among the many, but the one around which everything revolves, okay? So, We don't allow Christ to be positioned by something outside of him. Rather, he positions us with him at the center. Once we enter into this reality that Christ is at the center of our spiritual life, that Christ is the center of our spiritual life, everything else clusters around it and does so beautifully. It is like the rose budding, huh? Where you have these beautiful petals clustered together around its center. There's something so symmetric, engaging, attractive, beautiful about the petals clustering around its center. And when we live a Christocentric life, a life that positions Christ at the center, we are well on our way to discovering who we are called to be in our journey of faith. That being said, what is beautiful in our life springs forth from following Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, right? That all-important passage that comes to us from John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the way. Indeed, we could say he is a two-way street, because in him God comes to meet us, holding nothing back, offering everything that he has and everything that he is. Through him and, brothers and sisters, him alone Do we have access to God to such a point that we can now call him Abba, Father? How about the truth? Jesus is the truth. Not just some truth, but the entire truth. 
He is God's definitive and perfect word, expressing to us, my friends, who God is and what he's like. And in so doing, given us the revelation to discover who we are and what we need to do to be saved from misery and futility. What do we read from that all-important passage from the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 15? When he first calls his disciples friends, he says, Because you are my friend, I have revealed all to you that my Father has desired for me to share with you. Okay? Now, Jesus is just not a way, but the way. Just not a truth, but the truth. What does it mean to say that God is absolute truth? Well, above all else, it means to say that God is the only truth that can bear the weight of our existence. Brothers and sisters, many promises are made out there. Buy this car or purchase that outfit and you will be happy. Only God can satisfy the longing of our heart. The mythology of, say, something like the American dream can never bear the weight of our existence not to undermine or demean the free market. That's a good, for sure. But brothers and sisters, it is not the highest good. It is a means to an end, not an end in itself. The American dream cannot bear the weight of our existence. Now, it's interesting, when you take a look at the lives of saints, they don't treat the Bible as a myth. A bunch of nice stories about a teddy bear Jesus. No, rather... They understand the Bible for what it is, the living Word of God that cuts through the muck and the mire of our existence and ultimately raises us up to become who we are called to be in His image and likeness. We're not born to just survive, but to live. We have not come to just take, but to give. Life is worth living because of our capacity to love, and so we learn this language of love fluently when we turn to Jesus in all that we do. And so to this end, again, the truth of Jesus is the goal of our striving. And how about Jesus is the life? You see, my friends, he gives us not only commandments and noble ideals, but in Jesus, what's key here for us to understand is that he gives us the power to live them out, right? The power to to actually become a new person. And that power is the Lord and giver of life himself, the Holy Spirit who again, as I've noted before, Jesus pours into our souls. And he does so in order to what? Bring us more closely to him. As he orders our life, he perfects what is in us. And in and through him, he rules over our life. Interestingly here, the Latin word for Lord translates as one who dominates us, right? This is the the Kyrios, the Greek. Actually, not the Latin, but the Greek. And he doesn't dominate us in some tyrannical way, but in a loving and life-giving way. What does St. Paul say? It is no longer I living, but God living within me. It is no longer I living, but the thou who now lives within me. In other words, the I dies and the thou lives. The thou, capital T, God. My dear friends, Jesus tells his followers that he is the true vine, the real vine, and that they are the branches right? Whose task is to bear fruit by sharing his life. What does he say? I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Abide in me, and I in you. If you abide in me and my words in you, ask whatever you want. Apart from me, you can do nothing. 
So while the images of Christ as king and lord, teacher, shepherd, and judge certainly have their own importance in forming our perspective on how Christ relates to us, these images need to be balanced by such images as the what but vine. Because, my friends, the vine integrates the disciple into the life of Christ and Christ into the life of the disciple in an intimate unity and closeness that the other images just simply do not convey. Now, there is something else going on here. As soon as Jesus introduced the theme of the vine and the branches in the gospel message, who does he speak about but his father, the vine dresser? The vine dresser doing two things that require a knife, right? Every branch that doesn't bear the fruit, the father removes, removes, cuts away. And every branch that does bear fruit, the father prunes, so that what might bear more fruit? Again, the life to which the gospel invites us, my friends, is a life with Christ at the center. As we follow Jesus and come to know him personally, we find him calling us to submit ourselves to the pruning knife. Like all things that bear fruit, there must be a cutting back. And yes, pruning is always a painful process where there is always a form of loss or death. And we should take stock in the fact the vine dresser is never more intimately involved than when wielding the pruning knife. So the call to abide in the vine is a call to a personal and intimate knowledge of Jesus himself, not as an idea, right, but as a living person. True disciples of Jesus are dependent on the inner presence and activity of Christ for the renewal, for the, the regeneration of their own life into one of faith and love. True disciples can only be effective when they are grafted onto his life, allowing his very presence to pulsate through our minds and hearts. And it is on this point that I want to turn our attention to the topic of apologetics. Okay? Typically, we think of apologetics when we discuss with non-Christians their many questions about the faith. By definition, the word apologetics comes from the Greek apologeticus, which literally translates as just not defensible. But what have I highlighted on this point? What is defensible, right? Christ is the fullness of revelation. His truth is what is defensible because it is without blemish. So apologetics is the branch of theology which seeks to provide a reasonable explanation Okay, logic is the instrument to reason, so we always look to apply logic to provide a reasonable explanation of the why we believe what we believe. Apologetics always seeks to inform our natural reason, and, and as it does so, maybe remove obstacles or, or hindrances to believing. So apologetics becomes what it is intended to be, when it not only answers the immediate question being asked, but at once becomes a point of entrance into the larger whole of divine revelation, right? So while apologetics is not evangelization in its strictest form, it is linked to evangelization to the extent that it arouses new questions about the good news of Jesus Christ. And here, really, we make our first connection between what it means to be Christ-centered and a good apologetics, right? Each truth 
is better understood when it is related to the harmonious totality of the Christian message in Jesus Christ. Certainly we could say then, in this context, all of the truths are important and illumine one another. So once we have rooted ourselves in a Christocentric spirituality with a deeper understanding of who Jesus is as the way, truth, and life, we will then better understand how our apologetics will be more informed, how our apologetics acts as an entryway into the way, the truth, and the life. This is essential to understand because we have the tendency to get so wrapped up in conversation and answering specific questions that we fail to consider the soul of any good apologetic dialogue, which is always an understanding of apologetics as an entryway into a more holistic understanding of Christ and his church, right? Here we should pivot, if you will, and turn towards that classic passage from St. Peter, that classic apologetic passage from St. Peter, better said. This is 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who calls you to account for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and reverence. All right, let us go through these words in this verse. In that first word, always, we are brought back to the importance of perpetual prayer. What do we read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17? Be constant in your prayer. Pray without ceasing. You see, constant conversation with God, because that is prayer, right, awakens within us a sense of a kind of around-the-clock readiness to serve God, to defend God, to live for God. Again, when we put Christ at the center, the always, quote-unquote, comes into view. Now, St. Peter also reminds us that our apologetics will not evolve if our life is not imbued with the moral virtue of hope. The moral virtue of hope, as the Catechism highlights, is to desire the kingdom of heaven and eternal life as our ultimate happiness, right? which at once places our trust in Christ's promises, there's the Christocentric moment, in Christ's promises, and relying not on our own strength, but on the help of the grace of the Holy Spirit. So, in the context of evangelization, hope is manifested by a desire to preach the gospel. And such preaching opens up those around us to desire what we desire and prompts the question from others, Why do you live the way you live? At this point, yes, in our dialogue, we need to be prepared to give an account for why we live the way we live, and we do so with a spirit of gentleness and reverence. The virtue of gentleness, my friends, is not a soft pat on the back, but the attitude by which we are free from harshness and violence Gentleness is not weakness, but the attitude by which we free ourselves from any excess chatter. Gentleness is the virtue by which we listen more to speak better. Okay? Now, the virtue of reverence, which St. Peter couples with gentleness, refers to what we can call a godlike honor. The Latin ferior literally translates as uh, respect and fear. Fear defined as that awe-like presence before God. So the virtue of reverence helps us to draw back and create space for God to work in each moment and in each encounter. Reverence does not impose and devour, but proposes and listens. 
Reverence gives each individual due courtesy and respect as a child of God. It allows our defense and explanation of faith to breathe and reach its full measure. What happens in the absence of gentleness and reverence? In the absence of reverence and the listening ear? Well, our apologetics locks into this kind of point-counterpoint match of wits, which you and I both know goes nowhere. So collectively, it is the interlocking virtues of gentleness and reverence that invite the conversation to go deeper and really are the bridge by which truth shall pass. We need to enter into the art of listening and let the practice of that art reveal its beauty. Some of us have, I think, unfortunately turned apologetics into a game of simulation. Here I often go to the analogy found in the sporting world. You know, we see teams simulate opposing offenses and defenses in preparation for their next opponent, right? Interestingly, most coaches say it fails more than it succeeds because the actual game, the encounter, if you will, never plays out as it is drawn up, right? You see, the nuances of individuals can never be replicated exactly. No one could ever simulate the likes of, say, a LeBron James, Serena Williams, or David Beckham, huh? Similarly, in apologetics, we have to understand that studying the faith and preparation for conversations is very important. But we cannot have tunnel vision and think that it is going to go down just as we imagine. Here I've offered up the example, you know, if two sets of Jehovah Witnesses come to your door at different times, you cannot expect the discussion to unfold the same way each time. Yes, sure, we study how to respond to the Jehovah Witness at our door, but we do so with the understanding that it is our job to answer a question, not always with an answer, but sometimes with a question. I have found my conversations to be much more effective when I ask them a simple question. What is the most important truth? What is the most important truth of your faith? You see, my friends, it puts the ball in their court, and they will respond with what they feel to be the appropriate answer. The proper conversation will then ensue. Responding to a question with a question is instrumental in our religious dialogues. Again, this is to make our conversations Christ-centered. Christ answered a question with a question over 300 times in the New Testament. When I have asked my Jehovah's Witness uh, friend what is the most critical aspect of their faith, no one answer has been the same. And this really gets to the heart of my point. How is it that two different sets of Jehovah's Witness missionaries have different answers to what lies at the heart of their faith? Well, let me ask you this. If multiple Christians were asked what part of Christianity is most critical, do you think that every single Christian is going to have the exact same answer? Well, I'll tell you right now, the answer is no. You see, in the end, each apologetic dialogue is a work of the Holy Spirit, and we need to be open to how the Holy Spirit wants to navigate each conversation. Each person, whether he be a Mormon, Jehovah Witness, has his own set of experiences of the Christian faith. We need to be aware of what they may have encountered previously. Do all Christians, do all Catholics know what they should? No, not always. The apologist is at his best when he is mindful of not only the answer to a question, but the person who is asking the question. As apologists, 
we have to make sure that we are not only studying up on what others believe, but that we first know our own faith, right? How can we possibly encourage our zealous friends to cross that threshold if we ourselves do not know what we profess in our own creed? I have experienced this myself in my earlier years. I found that I was able to answer certain questions about what other people believed, but I did not know my own faith well enough to advance the conversation into that aforementioned harmonious totality. When we study other faiths, we must be sure that we first understand the fullness of our own faith. Revisiting the analogy of simulating your athletic opponent, the best defense is to first know how to play defense, how to tackle, how to read eyes, how to use your legs, so on and so forth. Simulation is utterly meaningless if we do not know the key elements of defense itself. In this case, the best defense is knowing our faith. In this case, the best defense is knowing who Jesus is as the way, the truth, and the life. And in that vein, when we talk about the relationship between what is Christ-centered and apologetics, well, not only is there a close relationship, I would say being Christ-centered in our apologetics is everything. Right? Because if we do not know the way, the truth, and the life, how can we even begin to not only live the faith that is going to lead to the question being asked, but in turn defend the faith? Okay? So, there is a very important relationship. (laughs) A sine qua non relationship. A relationship that is indispensable. Okay? I'm looking up at the clock and we are out of time. If you have any questions comments, observations about anything that I have talked about this evening, or if you yourself have an apologetic question about the Catholic faith or just Christianity in general, I would welcome your question. I would welcome the encounter. All right, let us close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we do just give you special thanks and praise for the gift of another evening, an evening that has afforded us the opportunity to reflect into these two important topics, what it means to be Christ-centered, and at the same time, uh, what it means to defend our faith, that these two words, once seen in light of each other, now hopefully have more meaning in our lives. By the grace of God, go all of us, and not only the call we have to put you in the middle, you at the center of our lives, but as we do, that we might be better prepared to defend your revelation the revelation of the way, the truth, and the life. We close in the words that you taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.